0: Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and other places. Hello. Elizabeth is showing off her amazing tattoos, which we will talk about later in the show. Uh, We are also joined, and this is extremely exciting, by the one and only Cardiff Garcia. Hello. Welcome back, Cardiff. Thanks. You are... Always fun to be here. Just the perfect Slate Money guest slash co-host. You just do everything. Introduce yourself, though, for those few Slate Money listeners who are not deeply familiar with your oeuvre. um, Who are you?
1: So I am the host of the New Bazaar podcast, and I do some other things, but that's the one I would chill for. But maybe more importantly for our purposes, uh, I am kind of an OG economics blogger like Felix uh, and a former econ journalist at the Financial Times and NPR and places like that. So, we are going to talk about Disney,
0: ESPN, Barstool Sports, sports gambling, all of that kind of stuff. That is going to segue elegantly into Cardiff's hobby, which is... Um, face punching? Face punching, yeah. <laughs> and the economics thereof. Apparently, there's billions of dollars in face punching, if you if you structure it correctly. Oh, yeah. We are then going to nerd the fuck out on private credit because this is slate money and this is what we do but you will have cardiff to guide you and so it will be painless um we have a slate plus segment on WeWork. um spoiler alert is doing really badly um it's all coming up on slate money disney is famous for being incredibly protective of its incredibly pristine brand and i remember back when they bought miramax everyone was like how on earth are they going to be able to cope with you know r-rated movies when they're disney and what and there's always been this like arm of disney called espn that has been relatively but not entirely pristine but it has always been or not as long as i can remember it's been owned by disney and Partly for that reason, mainly for that reason, I would say, ESPN has been like, we are not going to get into grubby things like sports betting. You know, betting is bad. So what changed, Elizabeth? Because now they seem to be getting into sports betting.
2: Yeah, I think it's just Iger trying to figure out what to do with ESPN and recognizing that, you know, gaming is a huge industry. So it's, it's just a money grab. And I think he assumes that because it's going to be branded as an ESPN property, the average person doesn't know it's a it's a Disney operation, so it's it's a matter of just separating the brands. I think.
0: So I think that's right. I think the ESPN brand and brand and the Disney brand are kind of two different brands, and you can take ESPN into the grubby depths of sports betting and Penn National, which is the the sort of after after afterthought betting company, um, and no one will sort of think less of the Little Mermaid as a result.
1: Yeah, although I I will say that Iger has shown some interest in selling at least a minority stake in ESPN to minority shareholders or possibly even a majority and, stake. And and, po- and I think it's been reported that they're open to just like spinning the whole thing I off. I think they would or, like or to keep a, it right? keep a
0: little bit, but yeah, they, you know, ESPN is on the block. Things, you know, we, shit is getting real. Yep. at Disney. Um they aren't making nearly as much money from streaming as they were from, you know, the olden days, and so they They are thinking the unthinkable. And one of the unthinkable things that they're thinking is like, okay, for a couple billion dollars, maybe we should allow our brand to be used for betting. I don't think that it's a super money grab. I don't think it's enough money that, it, that, that, that it would be enough to cause ESPN to give up valued principles. I think that first the principles go, you know, you're like everything is on the table now because we have to make some money somehow. And then once the principles are gone, you're like, okay, we can make a couple billion dollars by doing this with Penn and fine, we will. It's not like they gave up their principles for the money, but I think they gave up the principles first yeah. as a sort of strategic decision.
1: I think it's decent money for ESPN. It's small potatoes for Disney. Yeah. But I will say, this is quite a heel turn for Bob Iger, who's come storming back into the CEO chair to get rid of the guy that he had chosen as his successor. He's now making comments about the Writers Guild of America and how their demands are unrealistic in their strike. He's jacking up the price of Disney Plus, their subscription Thing And he's cracking down on, like, the cherished American tradition of password sharing, right? Like, this is, I mean, this is a guy who's come back and he's like, I have to be bold in what I'm doing. Will it work? Will it not work? I have no idea. But this seems of a piece with him coming back and realizing, especially that the streaming model uh, just isn't going to sort of do what he had expected it to do. And that the business model for Disney does have to change quite radically.
0: With hindsight this is too late. Like, If you're going to get into betting, the time to get into betting was the last time he was CEO, mm-hmm. back when FanDuel and DraftKings were competing aggressively with each other to, um, to get market share and customers. And they would have happily given up some absolutely enormous chunk of equity in order to get the ESPN branding. Now, both of them are like, we don't even need you. Which is why Disney is forced to go with this also ran company called Penn National Gaming, or whatever the hell they're called, with 2% market share, which, you know, in the best case scenario, will, you know, thanks to ESPN, get 4% market share or something like it's kind of sad, like Disney is meant to be this great dominant company, which dominates every industry it's in, it's never going to dominate this one.
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I think online betting is, is still relatively new. You know, it's it was largely enabled by a Supreme Court decision in 2018. So I, I take your point that DraftKings and FanDuel already have a huge chunk of the market. But, you know, Penn Entertainment's earlier deal was with Barstool Sports, and that was a disaster partly because Barstool is a disaster and Dave Portner is a, a disaster um, you know, it's it's a little unclear what, what they can do with us if with Disney as a partner instead of,
1: you know, it's a nightmare company. <laughs> it does seem like a pretty small deal, though, relative to yeah. what those other guys are doing to the other DraftKings and FanDuel. Um, but maybe there's still potential there. And I say that because so many of the states that have recently legalized... Sports gambling are in a kind of race to the bottom. It seems to loosen standards and to attract more gaming or more sports gambling into their states because it's such a big source of revenue. So this could continue, right? Like it could be that sports gambling is something. Um, no, I, I the, think the I revenues think, are still to be I, made. No,
0: I think sports gambling revenues are in the future to be sure. I just don't think that Penn is going to be a significant player, even with the ESPN branding, partly because. You know, the reason why people go to sportsbooks is because of, like, liquidity and prices and technology and all of that, not because it has a dumb media brand on it. Um, so, but, you know, I could be wrong about this. I'm, I'm highly bearish on the prospect for Penn, which, as we have discussed, you know, their last bright idea was let's get Barstool Sports on board, <laughs> pay—what what did they pay, like, half a billion millions, dollars? Yeah. Half a billion dollars for this dumb, like, bro company— um, rebranded their entire sports book as Barstool, and then all of the you know states that are legalizing sports gambling and stuff were like, really Barstool that guy? That guy? <laughs> and they made it even harder. And they were like, oh, okay, never mind. And this is my, it's absolutely amazing. They sell Barstool back to its like douchebag founder yeah, Dave Portnoy, Portnoy yeah. for one dollar. Yeah, for one. So he sells it for five hundred eighty million. He buys it back for one. Um, people are like, well, of course, you know. He he um, could drive that hard bargain because Bastel without Portnoy is nothing. So he's, you know, like, it would be silly to try and sell it to anyone else. But the fact is, honestly, it's not even worth $1. It is, you know, it has been losing money consistently. There's no obvious way for it to make money now that it can't do sports betting anymore. Um, you know, it, as a media company that advertises won't touch it with a ten foot pole right you You really get like the kind of advertisers who are you know okay with Twitter you know at this point
1: <laughs> do you think that e s p n if it hadn't been yoked to Disney, would have tried to start its own? sports and gambling operation years ago, maybe at the time that FanDuel and DraftKings were getting going, and that it's precisely because it was no, owned by this company. I think there would have been,
0: like, uh, I, yeah, they would have wound up in some kind of joint venture with one of those guys, got a bunch of... it. Would have, You know what? It would have been a bit like the record labels with Spotify. Mm. You know, they would have, like, gone in, got a bunch of equity, like, aligned incentives, all sort of that kind of stuff.
1: But back when those companies, like DraftKings, would have really benefited from the ESPN branding and they would have appreciated it. Now there's such big names, um, you know, on their own that who cares, right? Like right. ESPN is yeah. the one that's late to the game. That's what's a little bit sad, I guess, about all this. Is sports gambling... I, like-
0: I, I enter into a lot of bets. We're about to enter into a bet in Slate Plus, I believe. <laughs> yes, that's right. But, but sports gambling is is just like, I'm like, no. Yeah. I mean, it's mainly because I don't kid myself that I have any information about it. Not that having information about it actually seems to help.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's also just part of a very sort of heated debate going on right now about its likely effects now that it is legal, right? Is it something that's like, I don't know, whiskey and cigarettes where a little bit every now and again is fine, adds some enjoyment to your life, but... It's a short road from like a little bit to moderate, and it's an even shorter road from moderate to becoming a really damaging, addictive thing. And this so is relatively I'm, I'm, going,
0: I'm going to say, I'm going to push back on two of those things. Okay. Number one, a little bit of cigarettes is not fine.
1: Well, I, what I mean is that, like just a, a small amount every don't, now and again, social smoker, don't, uh, but, don't you be, don't, but you don't, don't, don't be become addicted. <laughs> uh,
0: but number two, yeah, certainly compared to nicotine, but even compared to alcohol i think gambling is not super addictive it can be you know if you have an addictive personality there are definitely people who are addicted to gambling but i think as a percentage of all gamblers that is lower than it is with most other addictive things but yeah we are 100 percent going to see an increase in the number of people who are addicted to gambling now that it is so easy
2: also, one of the problems that Penn had with Barstool was that Portnoy would get up and encourage people to make insane bets and brag about being addicted to gambling. Um, his own father referred to him as a degenerate gambler. Well, uh, uh, and they ran yeah, into regulatory problems because of it.
0: Um, shocking, <laughs> shocking. But yeah, and then like when he um, when he made his fortune selling Barstool to Penn, what did he do? Is he became like a Mimi online degenerate gambler in meme stocks and he fa- you know he famously had this thing saying stocks only go up and he you know he clearly just loves gambling everywhere and every how
1: Those are some of the least horrible things by the way that that he's been accused yes. of like <laughs> this is not a good dude and just want to be clear I'm not encouraging Anybody to smoke? That okay? <laughs> maybe pot on occasion or something like that, but no, don't start smoking cigarettes. All right? Okay, <laughs> thank you for thank you for clearing that Public up. Public service <laughs> announcement. Right. Um, no, I just I, I I think like the reason I make the comparison is because some people think it's like, hey, it's a vice, like any vice, you know, it should stay legal, but done every now and again, it's okay, but taken too taken too far, can be really damaging.
0: It's probably not as damaging as alcohol you know or so like on some kind of a libertarian argument you know if we are free to become alcoholics and to drink as much as we like why would we not be free to be to do sports gambling which on the, in the grand scheme of things is much less harmful you know if i'm a an addicted sports gambler and I get behind the wheel of a car. I am not actually a particular danger to the other people on the road.
2: It's not going to technically kill you. I guess that's the that's the point you're making.
0: <laughs> or, or or other people, you know. It's yeah. not it's not like you know physically dangerous in yeah. that way.
1: The threat is to your own life, not to to that of others. Or it's not like, even, livelihood I livelihood. Say, is yeah,
0: yeah. Um, whereas, and here's my wonderful segue. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Getting punched in the oh, face repeatedly oh, oh,
1: very
0: nice. <laughs> really is quite dangerous, and we would not recommend that. We're going to talk about how much one should get paid to get punched in the face repeatedly.
1: I think you're referring to the next segment, which is about this UFC lawsuit, this lawsuit brought by former fighters in the UFC, which is the largest by far promotional organization that runs mixed martial arts fights. Which is now
0: this segment. Which is now this
1: segment. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. Um, So this week, the reason this is in the news right now is because a judge certified that that lawsuit, which was brought by six or seven former fighters in the UFC, can now be a class action lawsuit, which means that I think about 1,200 fighters who fought in the UFC between 2010 and 2017 can now join and, in fact, are part of of this lawsuit. What they're alleging is that the UFC has used anti-competitive tactics to keep down the wages of UFC fighters in the UFC. So that's what all this is about.
0: Okay. So let's, um, first of all, Cardiff, Yes, because th- you are here and we don't, we don't have you on this show nearly often enough, but we're going to take full advantage of you being here.
1: Yep. First of all, what the
0: hell is the UFC?
1: Okay, stands for Ultimate Fighting Championship, right? Uh, but that's the name of the organization that runs MMA, mixed martial arts. Mixed martial arts uh, is, is mixed is, martial arts
0: and ultimate fighting the same thing? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically. All right.
1: So it, it basically it's uh it's a style because of I thought fighting, ultimate fighting and- was
0: fighting with frisbees.
1: Also, frisbees, right? You know what? Introducing frisbees into mixed martial arts fights would be fun, but no. Basically, these are fights in which a fighter can use the different tactics from a variety of martial arts disciplines. So it includes things like jujitsu, wrestling, boxing, muay thai. Kickboxing, things like that, and it's all combined into one thing. The UFC is by far the biggest organization that puts on these fights, and by most estimates, it gets about 90% of the revenues in the whole sport. How did it do that? A few different ways. One is in the 2000s, it was genuinely like, you know, an entrepreneurially impressive organization, but it also bought out all of its rivals, in some cases, shutting them down. So it has very few rivals left right now that have anything close to being competitive with the ufc The fighters basically said that because of this, the UFC is not just a monopoly, it's also a monopsony. And for listeners who aren't familiar with this term, this is basically when there's one employer, and so the fighters have to basically agree to the terms, or the workers have to agree to the terms of that employer because they can't leave to go somewhere else. And that because the UFC has this position, it's able to use coercive contracts and coercive tactics during the life of those contracts to keep the fighters' wages down that's what this case is all about
0: and and the key thing here is that the ufc allegedly and probably in fact <laughs> behaved in an anti-competitive way by doing things like buying up its competitors and shutting them down and that if it hadn't been anti-competitive in that way then the fighters could have played one fighting league off against another and then gone to the highest bidder now There's only one bidder, and so the fighters have no choice but to take the low pay from the UFC. That is a clear violation of all antitrust principles, and so the potential. Remedies here that they could win are quite enormous. And doesn't your heart just bleed for Endeavor, <laughs> which owns the UFC and might have to pay out all of these workers?
1: Yeah, it, it's not just the remedies that they might have to pay to the fighters in this class action suit. It's also that they might have to change the way that they design these contracts so as to be less anti-competitive. So I'll tell you about the one tactic that's like really been frustrating to so many of the fighters and that's in this lawsuit. When a UFC fighter signs up to fight for the UFC it's not just for one fight. Usually they'll say, okay, you fight for us for six fights, we'll pay you X amount for those fights. And and how much do they get paid? So it depends on how good you are. and this, This really varies quite dramatically. But what happens is that let's say you've Felix Salmon are fighting in the UFC now, right? Terrifying. And
0: right. I would be terrified. <laughs> Everyone would be terrified of me. Can
1: I place a bet on that
2: <laughs> right now? Right.
0: Yeah. Um, You'll bet on me, right, to win. <laughs> no
1: comment. <laughs> uh, but let's say you sign up for a six-fight contract and you fought five fights. And you're like, great, I can't wait for my new contract. And if I don't like the new contract, I'll go fight for a competitor. Right? The UFC will go to you and say, nope. You need to sign a new contract with us before this contract ends, or we won't give you that sixth fight. And you end up in limbo, possibly indefinitely. The UFC did this multiple times, and it was in this lawsuit. And this is something that the fighters are trying to get the UFC to stop by partly making these contracts shorter term in nature by having sunset provisions so that if the UFC doesn't offer you a fight by a certain period of time, then that contract is over. And then you can leave and go fight for somebody else like
0: when Mark Zuckerberg sets up a rival league.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, who knows? I
0: mean, like, we just saw, didn't we just see a whole bunch of Silicon Valley CEO types set up a cricket league? Yeah. I feel like that's much more civilized, but, like, Mark Zuckerberg is not particularly civilized, and he's famously into mixed martial arts. So, like, how hard would it be? Like, how big is the moat here? How hard would it be for a billionaire to wake up one morning and say, I'm going to compete with UFC?
1: Really hard. And part of the problem is that the UFC really has locked up so many of the best fighters into these contracts already. And it was able to do that by dint of stuff that it did in the 2000s when it was buying up all of its competitors. And so that's one problem uh, is just getting all of the best talent over to this new organization that you're going to set up. You'd have to get a lot of them out of their UFC contracts first so like that i think is the biggest moat um but also any company that already has just by virtue of status quo bias 90 percent of the revenues in the sport just has a huge inbuilt advantage you'd have to like promote the hell out of this new company you'd have to like do something different you'd have to find some way to get big enough fighters who have managed to find their way out of ufc contracts um by the way some organizations have done this and it's not that they're completely unsuccessful, right? They're there, they're still alive for now, um but very few. I mean if if Netflix for example had 90% of all the revenues in the streaming space, we would all say this is a ludicrous concentration of an industry, right? And that's what's been going on in the UFC well, for a It kind of did for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so if the fighters
2: win the lawsuit, do those contracts get renegotiated or is
1: I, I think the fighters in the lawsuit themselves would get like Back pay, what they think their wage share would have been if, in fact, like these contracts had been uh, had been fair the whole time. And there's different ways that like sports lawyers are like trying to calculate what that would be. Um, But I think it would also change the way the UFC makes contracts going forward, which, by the way, would be a big hit to its business model. It's deliberate business model. And, it, and we know this because of some of the internal documents that have come out in the course of this lawsuit, was to keep the wage share down. That's how the former owners of the UFC were able to sell the UFC to Ari Emanuel and Endeavor for and some private equity firms for $4 billion. The valuations were high precisely because the labor compensation was low. And that was their strategy, which they admitted in these documents. This isn't me speculating. right? But,
0: and then Endeavor just recently bought the wrestling WWE uh, equivalent of UFC, which has I'm going to say like similar economics in that like yes. it has kind of a monopoly on that sport as well.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I know less about the WWE, but accusations that it also, en- you know, engages in monopsonistic tactics have been there for you know decades at this point. Yeah,
0: and the um the corporate finance angle here is that apparently Endeavor wants to combine the WWE with the UFC. And then spin them out into its in, as their own sort of um, men hitting each other company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and women. There to are be women fair. in this too. Absolutely. There's a, there, there are several women's divisions in, in the US. I would
2: like to see a niche business where it's just billionaires fighting each other.
0: Just billionaires fighting each other. I feel like the number of billionaires who want to do that is exactly two. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to scale that.
1: Just have them fighting,
0: fighting each other I'd be forever, fine with you know? just two of <laughs> <me> them. <fighting. laughs> just those two. Just those two. You should really listen to the Slate Plus segment on WeWork. It's fun. It's awesome. And the reason you should do that is not just because it's fun and awesome, but because if you become a Slate Plus member in order to listen to that one segment, you wind up with so much more. You get Slate Plus segments every week on Slate Money. Also, Slate Plus segments on a whole bunch of other great shows like Slow Burn or The Political Gab Fest or The Waves. You get no ads on any of the Slate podcasts. You get to support the podcast, and you get unlimited reading across the Slate website. Every single article, advice column, you name it, you never hit the paywall. So become a member at slate.com moneyplus. That's slate.com moneyplus. Okay, uh, we should move on and talk about private credit. Oh! Because Cardiff Garcia is um, our favorite finance nerd. Oh, God. And when we have a finance nerd on here, we need to get nerdy. So let me set the stage here, and then you can explain what's going on. Okay. Broadly speaking, there are two ways the companies borrow money. There are bonds and there are loans. If you want to... Borrow from banks, you do that with a bank loan, and that's often floating rate debt. And then alternatively, if you want to borrow from like the capital markets and non-banks, you issue a bond. And then a whole bunch of people bid on your bond and they trade it and it trades. Um, Then there's this new strange animal called private credit, which is basically borrowing from non-banks, but it's still a loan. So Cardiff. Explain, number one, why does this thing exist? Okay. And number two, why does it seem to be having a, a resurgence right now?
1: Yeah, those are, I think, part of the same answer, which is that right now, because interest rates have been climbing the business model for the banks is getting kind of squeezed on all sides. So the value of the loans that banks have made have plummeted, and those are their assets because interest rates are higher. But also the depositors, which banks need partly to help fund some of those loans, have multiple options because interest rates are also higher. So the banks both have to pay more to their depositors or the depositors can flee and go to money market funds. And consequently what's happening is that a lot of banks are getting – out of the business or shying away from the business of lending in particular to small and mid-sized companies because their, their business model is bad and a lot of these loans are considered somewhat risky. So enter private credit which has really become more and more popular over the course of the last year. And the definition of private credit is a little bit amorphous, but in terms of what we're talking about here, the simple definition is this. Private credit funds raise money from investors. Those investors tend to be large institutions like pension funds or nonprofits or rich individuals, but like... I can't, you know, go on to an exchange uh, or call my broker or whatever and invest in one of these funds. You have to qualify for this kind of thing, right? So it raises money from these investors. And then what they do is, this is the biggest category of private credit funds. They lend directly to these small and mid-sized, typically private companies. Right. And they'll in many cases, like they'll originate the loan. They'll tailor the loan. It is usually a floating rate loan or they can sometimes buy a loan that already exists. And so what they're doing is they're plugging the gap that's been left by the banks, which have kind of gotten out of this business. So they do other things, too. They invest in all kinds of other you know credit. But that's the thing that everybody's talking about. And at least according to the Fed, that is also the biggest category of private credit lending. So that's what private credit funds do.
0: Now, now, final question, just to sort of set the stage here. Yep. Is a private credit fund the same as a CLO?
1: No, it's not. So a CLO is uh, a security in which a number of bank loans, leveraged bank loans, risky bank loans, So are these are originated together, by right?
0: banks and not by private credit. Correct. Got Correct. it. Okay, so now we understand the, the big picture, which is that private credit funds are basically taking the place of banks in terms of lending to small and medium companies. Um, Presumably the reason these companies aren't issuing bonds is they're just not big enough.
1: Probably. It's a good question. Uh, Maybe they don't think that they have they would have successful access or, to like or it bond would be markets.
0: Just very expensive to do all of that capital it, market stuff.
1: Exactly, yeah. they're not big enough to do it. If they're not even able to get you know loans from the banks, you know, and these are smaller companies, so maybe these are even banks that they've had long-standing relationships with. Maybe they just don't think yeah. they'd be successful in the bond. Yeah, market. If, if
0: you if you can't get a if you can't get a bank loan, mm-hmm. it's very unlikely you'll be able to issue a bond. Yeah. So okay, so that's the big picture. When I read stories about this, there always seems to be a bit of sort of agitator about it. People are like, we think this should probably be bad somehow, and we're going to come up with reasons why it could be bad and should be bad or might be bad. Is this bad?
1: I'll be honest. I, I sometimes have that same instinctive nervousness because anytime you hear that some part of the modern financial landscape has employed some sense of like adaptability or ingenuity or you know innovation. Yeah, you get nervous because that can be good, but also we've seen in the past how all kinds of innovations can lead to you know risks that we don't understand. In this case though, these private credit funds number 1 have what are known as lockup periods, which means that investors can't just pull their money out whenever they want. That money's locked up for 5 or 10 years, unlike depositors in a bank which can flee. Second, as far as we know, these funds don't use very much leverage. They don't borrow much money to then invest in, in further credit. So in that sense, they're actually safer than banks
0: because banks, by their nature, are much more levered. Well, that
1: is there's, there's certainly also, the argument
0: they're making, yes, and it's
1: not implausible.
2: Yeah, there's also some default risk, though, with the small businesses that are borrowing. Do you think it's a riskier asset class than the kinds of businesses who can get loans from
1: traditional banks? I mean, probably, but the thing that i do worry a little bit about, and I just have zero idea if this will end up being a problem later on down the line, is that the borrower's experience, if times get tough, might be very different from if they had a loan from the bank. And what I mean by that is that these private credit funds are often run by large firms. Uh, Many of them were, still are, huge private equity firms that are skilled in like the dark arts of getting their money back when it looks like one of their borrowers can't pay them back and I just don't know what that means for a situation where some of these companies start going bankrupt which they will right, right.
0: I, so the first big thing is obviously if you're small and medium sized companies they, that some of those will default some of those loans will default right that's just statistically inevitable mm-hmm. um, if you get a wave of defaults to banks, that's really bad because it can hit their capital and it can make the bank fragile. If you get a wave of defaults to private credit funds, it's kind of no harm, no foul on a systemic basis, right? Like Correct. a bunch of investors in the in a private credit fund lose some money. Who cares, right? Obviously, the, the borrower is sad that they went bankrupt, but the borrower goes bankrupt I, either way, right? But it's actually, I think, even better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are... A borrower from a bank and you run into trouble the bank will kind of look at you and go you're in trouble and cut off credit private credit funds in general and this is a little bit anecdotal but it does seem to be the case they're more willing to restructure to you know what they call extend and pretend like to basically just you know push off your maturities to do things to make sure that you don't actually have to file for bankruptcy because they're more exposed to you and like if you go bust then they lose money and they try and keep that loan rolling over to avoid losing money and i kind of think that on a weird in a weird way the default rate will go down as a result of these people borrowing from private credit rather than banks.
1: That uh, also strikes me as quite plausible. I just don't know. You know, the, the thing that I sometimes think about is when, for example, a private equity firm, many of which are running these private credit funds, get into a fight with what are known as distressed debt hedge funds over like the assets of a particular company that that private equity firm has bought and is now, you know, in default on some of its debt. And they start fighting over like the assets of the company instead of figuring out how to make the company run better. You know what I mean? So, you know, in a situation where a private credit fund uh, is owed money, they might do exactly what you're talking about, Felix, um, where they're, they're like, listen, we want We want you to stay in business so that you can keep paying us back. Or they might start saying, uh, the heck with this, we just wanna get paid back as quickly as possible. Sell that asset that you have, and if you you know, if you end up not being you know a surviving business later on, what do we care? Right? I just have no idea, right? I I, I wanna believe the story you're telling, right? And it sounds incredibly likely to me, but I just don't know. The other thing I would say is that. The Federal Reserve did a kind of brief study about this in its recent uh, financial stability report. And it said two kind of funny things almost side by side. It said private credit funds are investment vehicles about which very little is known. We also don't think that they are a systemic risk. (laughs) It's like we don't know what they're up to, partly because they're private, um, but they also don't think it's a systemic risk. I happen not to be too super worried about private credit funds being a huge risk to the financial system. But I also don't know anything that, like, the Fed doesn't know, certainly, or that right. it's reported, but, like, right? So
0: I, I'm, I kind of agree on both counts. I have this general feeling yeah. that buy-side institutions in, in general, investors don't really pose a systemic risk. Mm -hmm. If I'm an investor, what I have is assets, right? I have some bonds, I have some stocks, I have some loans. And the value of those bonds, stocks and loans, they can go up, they can go down. Like If I'm a good investor, they'll go up. If I'm a bad investor, they'll go down. But like, it's not clear how the value of my investments going up or down poses a systemic risk to anyone. Unless I have a bunch of leverage, and there's danger there, right? So that's where banks come in. Banks are, that banks pose a systemic risk for a bunch of reasons, mainly, though, that, you know, we have this thing called fractional reserve banking, and there's a bunch of embedded leverage in them. And as a result of that, banks are highly regulated. So I think this is, this is right. As so long as you have these kind of long-only funds, buying loans and investing in, small companies and stuff, like, that's fine. The thing, but the the reason we don't know much about what's going on in private credit is precisely that they're much, much less regulated than banks. So there is a little bit of a regulatory arbitrage here. um, But I just feel like there's a good reason for them to be less regulated than banks. And that's precisely that.
1: They're not that risky on a systemic basis. They take all the losses, too. Yeah. Right? Uh, I will say there is kind of an irony in some of this, which is that those private credit funds that do use leverage... They get the leverage from the banks that they're sort of meant to be replacing, right? <laughs> right. And apparently what's going on here is that some of the banks, what they're really worried about is lending to individual credits, to individual companies. But they don't mind it as much. They don't mind helping provide credit to that sector of medium-sized companies if they're giving the money to a private credit fund, which is kind of diversifying right. the loans that it's giving out, right? right. So, uh, if,
0: if the bank has know. that like first loss position in the private credit fund, Like, the private credit fund kind of behaves a bit like a CLO in that sense, right? Like, you can borrow—they have, like, the exposure to the safest bit of the credit fund, and then the owners of the credit fund have the, you know, equity. And that's a nice way of, like, divvying up risk. You give banks the safer bit of the risk, and then you you allocate risk to the people who are best placed to take that risk and who want to take the risk. This is how finance should work. I
1: agree. I have mildly warm (laughs) feelings towards this trend, but— I also want to acknowledge all the stuff that I don't know and that this is very early, right, in the sort of popularization of these funds. They've become more and more popular since the great financial crisis of 2008-2009, but they've really taken off in the course of the last year and now all of these big... Private equity firms are getting into this business. And so one thing I guess that could happen is that the trend goes too far when there's a ton of lending, it could fuel some, you know, asset bubbles somewhere. I don't know. But I agree that the, we, the we trend could have a growing economy. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh,
0: small no. businesses could have access to capital. <laughs> what? No. Uh, we should have a numbers round. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, Elizabeth, what's your number?
2: Uh, my number is 88.5 million, and that's the number of Americans who have a tattoo. And I learned this from a press release uh, basically promoting something called National Tattoo Removal Day. And I love, <laughs> which is apparently August 14th, I love that PR firms can just do this. So I'm going to unilaterally declare next Friday National Slate Money Day.
0: Wait, are you a PR firm? I expect firm? to. Or do you don't even need to be a PFM? No,
1: I, th- I think it's it's a very democratic kind of thing.
0: <laughs> can um, I just say, by
1: the way, uh, we're in the studio. Our listeners obviously can't see us. Um, you have a very cool tattoo. Elizabeth is on is, on your arm.
0: is looking is is very sleeveless today. Yes. Um, there used to be a time when Elizabeth would come into the studio sporting one very thin line of a tattoo, and we were like. Ooh, look at that elegant, minimal tattoo. <laughs> and now her other arm is covered in snakes and flowers and things. I love and like, that. Yeah, she's gone
2: maximalist
0: on the other arm. Yeah,
2: I think barring the possibility that Felix has a small portrait of Jay Powell somewhere discreet, <laughs> I, I'm probably Janet Yellen. the only, <laughs> the, the only Slate money shows sure. who has tattoos. So. Um,
0: my number is 600.
1: Can't, I'm trying to guess and which I can't
0: guess. is the number of individuals on this year's Forbes 30 under 30 list wow that's a, <laughs> that's a lot you know like you would think that a 30 under 30 list would have 30 30 people on there people yeah. I mean isn't that what it means like, yeah <laughs> <laughs> somehow somehow this is 600 under 30 but I guess that just doesn't it, have the it, same these ring
1: split up categories is that what's going on here
0: I have no idea. the whole thing is um, dumb
1: as sand yeah <laughs> I also think it's bad I think it's like it's a bad societal influence you yes. know it's like cigarettes yes I think 30 <laughs> under 30 right so, Fr- so if you can have, to have one, like one or friends two be
0: 30 under 30 yeah. influences yes
1: makes you feel like a like a failure if by 31 you haven't you know achieved the world or
0: whatever like back when it was 30 like you felt that it was a meaningful thing now it's 600 it's like anyone can be a 30 under 30 at this point.
1: Do you think there's a higher share of sociopaths on 30 under 30 than in like the gen, general population? Yes. One of my favorite, I, I like almost certainly. One of my favorite things
2: is to look back at these lists, you know, 20 years later or 10 years later and see how many people are under investigation for some kind of financial fraud because it's always a non zero number. Right.
1: Yeah. So we, we should, we should like,
2: yeah, but Come now, and, but, but it's so, six, it,
1: too many people to follow now. It's too, yeah, like,
2: yeah, you, we're going to need to
0: get an AI to do that. Like, back when it was 30, you could go down the list and go, like, under indictment, in jail. Like, when it's 600, that's just a, too much work. Like, you 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 need to get ChatGPT to do that for you.
1: I like the idea that Interpol automatically opens a file on you if you make a 30 under 30 list, right? Like, it's just going to follow you for the rest of your life and just, like, you know. I mean,
0: it's it's not a bad heuristic, to be honest. Uh, what's your name, Cardiff
1: you guys had cool numbers. Now, yeah. I'm a little worried that mine is too dorky, but here dorky it is. Dorky is good. We like here dorky. Here it is. Uh, my, my number is 1.45 percentage points. Uh, Ooh, or, the, like, or, the
0: minute it's a percentage <laughs> points, that's a good number.
1: 145 basis points maybe would be uh, applicable here. So uh, – That is how much more you'll get paid in annualized yield if you have a three-month treasury than if you have a 10-year treasury. Oh, the famous inverted yield curve. (laughs) I was
0: was wondering whether this was going to be an inverted (laughs) yield curve number. And guess what? It's the three-month, 10-year inversion. It has been inverted for what? Like over a year now? We
1: are on month number 10. And here's why this is interesting. If you go all the way back to the 1960s and you use this particular part of the yield curve, when it's inverted for more than three months, it has always been followed by a recession. And there have been no false signals, which means that every recession has also been preceded by this kind of a yield curve inversion. Here's the thing, though. On average, it has taken about 11 months from the date of the initial inversion to the start of the recession, and we are on month number ten. Um, <laughs> but before the Great Financial Crisis, it took twenty-one months. So there can be a lag, and there's no guarantee that this that this you know sort of indicator of a potential recession is going to hold forever. At some point, like that relationship could break, and that's what people are speculating about right now.
0: Soft landing, baby.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I I prefer a healthy economy to a bad economy.
0: So. But also, we did actually have. Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth in the middle there. Now, that wasn't an NBER recession, right? Um, but like, if you want to be sort of, if you want to, if you want to like pick your definition of recession, then maybe it still stands.
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I follow the methodology used by a guy named uh, Campbell Harvey, who originally came up with the recession predictive abilities of the yield curve in the 1980s. Partly because he's been using this methodology from before the last few recessions, so it's not like going back and then like cherry picking the specific version of the yield curve that works. But like this all should just be part of a lot of information that you absorb about the economy. There's nothing guaranteed. There's nothing definitive. But I liked it as a number. <laughs> it's a good no. It's a
0: good number. Like I have this um, theory that an inverted yield curve basically just means rates are going up. You know, we're, we're in a tightening cycle and. Most of the time when the Fed starts tightening, that causes at least a mild recession. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't this time, that's great. And it shows the Fed's, you know, either more powerful or less powerful, depending on how you want to look at it. I'm rooting for them. You um, know. We should all be. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the American economy's ability to um, stay strong in the face of 11 consecutive rate hikes is... uh, We should be proud of that as Americans. Damn right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Thanks to the Sleep Money listeners. As long as you go out and spend money on travel, domestic travel, (laughs) swimming pools, (laughs) kitchen gadgets, Slate Plus memberships, whatever it is you spend money on, just keep on doing that and we'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Go out and shop, as George Bush said after 9 11. That's the best thing you can do.
1: And enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that's it for us this week. Thank you so much, um, Cardiff, for coming in. It's always brilliant to have you here. This is a lot of fun, guys. Thank you. Um, Thanks to Ben Richmond and to Patrick Fort for making this sound all beautiful and fantastic. And we will be back next week with even more Slate Money.